This is a Burn FM podcast. Welcome back to Can We Just Talk. This week we have a guest lecturer with us. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Gilson and I'm a reader in Asian Studies here at the University in the Department of Political Science and International Studies. Catherine filling in for Esme as co-host today. So this week we wanted to talk about climate action, how we can really make people wake up about the issue. We'd like to know how do we get people to actively become involved in climate action and what do you think are the best ways to communicate to the public the public to the government to try and get everyone involved and to see the complex climate problems we are facing? That's a, a big question. Um, so my interest and my academic interest is in Asia and climate change in parts of Asia is very dramatic already. What we have here um, is much less visible for most people. So it's very difficult to activate people to, to move and make changes to their lives when they can't readily see the disastrous consequences of climate change. We do have flooding, we do have temperature change, we have seasonal changes and um, extinction of various species. But it's not as dramatic as we see elsewhere. We don't have the fires you see in Australia or California, for example. And sometimes it's not until it reaches our own doorsteps that we start to panic. I think we could possibly think about the polar bear problem. And I would describe the polar bear problem as we see these pictures of polar bears who are no longer able to survive on melting ice caps and we we feel sorry and we're worried but polar bears as far as I'm aware are not yet in the Midlands and so they're not really our problem so they're someone else's problem and I think that's very difficult for us to do something with isn't it so when, when it comes to our own activism I think we have to communicate through the things that matter to us so it matters for example where we get our energy from we can see that with the current crisis um, it matters that we think about renewable energy and, and finding different ways of avoiding the use of fossil fuels because we're going to need to heat our homes in the future. It matters to us that we can get transport to our work and to our friends. Um, so we need to think about the issues that matter on the doorsteps of the Midlands, of the United Kingdom. And when we communicate, we need to communicate in these very personal ways. I would say that the best way to communicate is through information. One of the biggest problems we have is where is good information? You talk about fast fashion and we've seen companies saying they now have green approaches to their fashion, but fast fashion can't be green. So the, the level of misinformation is highly problematic. So we need groups like the university's own climate justice movement, which is very important for disseminating good information, getting people on board through a variety of means. Um, and trying to tap into what is going on on the campus. Yeah, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, I guess. Like, people, if it's not affecting them, they're like, why should I, you know? Definitely, yeah, I think it's also because some of these climate um, events are so catastrophic, our brains actually can't really kind of understand what that's like when you're not, as you said, a part of it. Fires in Australia were just devastating. I mean, we lost so much in those. But as you said, because it's like, oh, that's someone else's problem. Or if we delegate this issue to not as important as say the current news there's so many issues going on at the moment the taking everyone's attention like the, the war in Ukraine at the moment or wars anywhere in Yemen anywhere else and things like that I think that's very risky to then move the climate crisis to oh that's like secondary news because really even though all these awful things are happening we still need the climate crisis to be number one news because this is affecting everyone all the time everywhere. 
And maybe like visual culture can help because I don't know about you, but if I see a really big statistic, it's hard to imagine in your head kind of the impacts of that. Whereas I think with the fires and things like that, if you actually can see what's happening, maybe that can inspire people to be like, oh, this is serious. It's not just a figure on paper anymore. You're seeing the impacts it's having on other people. Yeah, definitely. So I think for me, seeing that, like watching a documentary or watching the news or something like that does have much more impact than reading an article and just a plain text of it could be very interesting but I don't feel like it really motivates you maybe as much as maybe we do need to move towards more you know like scandalous films showing everything falling apart to really lodge in people's minds but then you don't want to create so much fear that then everyone goes well that's too scary that I can't do anything yeah. But I think it's a very fine line, isn't it? So I think I think Blue Planet has had mm-hmm. that impact and that very visual impact and has shocked a lot of people. Um, and so I think those things are really uh, important. But I would agree that the climate, the climate issue is not one issue, and it does seem overwhelmingly complex and overwhelmingly frightening. That I, I don't blame people for not wanting to engage with it readily and to think about it daily because it can be quite paralysing. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that a lot of people actually suffer from uh, anxiety regarding the climate now as well. So it's about being active and proactive within the realms of the possible um, and, and not trying to paralyse people by showing them just how terrifying everything is. I would say, however, that the recent IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report of February this year, um, was very, very stark. And I think it's really important to look at that science transmitted in the way that they convey it um, to show us that many of the issues around climate change are already irreversible and to look at what we can do um, given those parameters um, so it's important to have that science in front of us and to find have people who are able to communicate that science in a way that is accessible to the rest of us mm-hmm. it's a bit of a weird question but i still talking about the climate crisis with people occasionally have met people who said oh no it's just a natural phenomenon no it's just you know it always happens it's just part of the cycle of the earth and i just get so frustrated obviously by that i don't actually know how to eloquently shut that down (laughs) what would you what would your as an academic who studies climate change what would you say to that because it's it's very common across the world people denying it well to make change you don't need everybody on board you need enough people to change government policy to look at international agreement and to change uh, social behaviors you don't need everybody i was on the streets of my local town last week and working on a net zero hub and a couple of people came up to me and said, um, we're all doomed anyway. That <laughs> um, They're not the people I'm speaking to because I'm interested in the people who are willing to engage in the conversation. So we're always going to have detractors. And again, it may well be from fear that they feel the need to speak like that, or it may be from ignorance. Either of those two um, things we need to address in a, in a more holistic way by communicating effectively and by looking at what we can do and speaking to those who are willing to be spoken with. Yeah. yeah. So how best do you think we can accelerate change? So I'm, I'm not someone who thinks we've got time on our side um, and I think it's really important that we all make our own effort to, to effect change and, you know, again, I think the fast fashion, if we could really make uh, people understand the consequences of those uh, consumer choices. Many people, once they knew, I'm sure, would reduce or eliminate those choices. Um, 
But I think the only way we can make a significant change quickly is to change laws and government policy. So the big ticket issues that we can look at in the UK, for example, are around housing, looking at um, new build housing and the regulations on um, environmental protection, climate policy regarding housing, um, I think is inadequate so far. Looking at how we can subsidise the introduction of greater insulation and other housing um, amendments to people who already have existing older housing stock. And things like public transport. A lot of our rural areas are simply not accessible. Um, A lot of our town and city uh, transport is still inadequate. So the more we can get people out of their cars, the more we can get people in efficient housing. I think that has to come through government policy. That's very interesting about public transport, <laughs> because I recently went home for Mother's Day, and I live in Reading, so from Birmingham it's really it's an hour and 30 minutes on the train, and it was £42 for also a service where really busy, the train wasn't very clean, wasn't very nice, and that's expensive for a very short trip. And when I was living abroad last year in the Scandinavian country, you could go on a five-hour train journey for literally the same price or about five pounds cheaper because they've really invested public money in public transport to become greener and more sustainable. And I think people I've met that come to this country have been shocked by the state of public transport, to be frank, because it is very poor in the often delayed often there's not enough carriages and it's really expensive i mean to go to edinburgh from here i think is over 100 pounds and i think something would be so easy to do or not easy because i know it's embedded in so many political problems of privatization and everything but just sorting that out i always just get so annoyed by it just making more people get out of their cars as you said and onto public transport surely would be such a, a good thing to do But then there's like where I live up north, (laughs) that infrastructure just doesn't exist. So for us to get this town centre, the nearest town is about 25 minutes away and in the car and there's like a bus every two hours and if you are going to get out of your car you've got to forward plan, get all the family on the bus, you know, and in our village that's not going to happen. People aren't, people, families do have multiple cars because that's one of the only like viable means to get around I guess so. And it's like, are they going to invest in that infrastructure to get us out of the cars? You know, probably not. Mm, exactly. And I just think it's so such a shame that we've designed our cities and our towns and things around cars and not people. Especially when you see Birmingham. I mean, I know it has the industrial past, so everything's all a bit all over the place anyway. But, I mean, it's just not made for people when you're trying to go around Birmingham. Meanwhile, we live in Selioka, students cars everywhere Bristol Road is so busy they've made a cycle path but I mean you see about two bikes per week other boys yeah (laughs) that aren't a substitute for the cars they're just people having fun (laughs) yeah exactly and I do think things like that it it makes me and I'm sure it makes a lot of people irritated on a day-to-day basis that you just feel like not enough is being done that could change people's habits on a daily basis that would have a big impact I think yeah, I agree. It's hard though, isn't it? Because, you know, it's easier to get in your car with your family, isn't it? And make a spontaneous decision to go out. So are you lobbying? Are you writing to your MP complaining about your comfortable life? You know, it's very, it's very difficult. And also, we have to be very aware that the, the more regulation we put in, in terms of environmental protection, we, we have to ensure that we're not increasing inequalities. Mm-hmm. So people who have the hardest uh, time getting anywhere, for example, they shouldn't be penalised. We should be looking at making sure that we protect the most vulnerable and the poorest within our societies whilst trying to make these massive changes to our infrastructure. None of those are easy decisions to make. And of course, none of those are short term. And the very essence of 
the political is short termism. So we need to be, you know, we need to be lobbying on multiple fronts to try and elicit change, but in a way that isn't going to be detrimental to the most vulnerable in the society we want to live in. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I do think everyone that has, as you said, the time and the privilege to lobby should. I mean, I personally have emailed my MP on quite a few occasions, annoyed it since the pandemic on (laughs) certain issues. And I found a lot of people complain and don't do anything about it, but they could, those people that could do something about it. It's very easy, obviously, not to do something about it. It's the easier option. But I think it's so essential because you see massive political forums such as COP26, which we recently had, where, I mean, the fate of the world has been decided by realistically a bunch of men who run countries. And then at the very end, they were decided to not sign on to this phasing out of coal. And it just seems so, watching it or reading it on the news and thinking, oh, what's my bit of recycling that also probably doesn't even actually get recycled? And what's the point when these leaders are doing exactly the opposite? So again, I think um, thinking about the COP26 being held in Glasgow, it did raise the profile of a number of the issues. We didn't, we only talked about coal and fossil fuels, which was interesting because there are other issues. And yes, a number of countries did not sign up to the phasing out. So there were many problems, but it did raise consciousness. It did have those kinds of conversations happening around the country. um, And it did engage people in a way that I haven't seen previously. Now, how to sustain that is where the difficulty lies. I also think there's a fundamental, it goes back to the car in a way, there's a fundamental uh, division between humans and the environment we live in. There's, there's a lack of awareness of what the countryside is, mm-hmm. what nature does. Um, and I think, you know, being able to think about our interaction with nature around us, we could do that better. We could do it through primary school and preschool education better, but it doesn't need to stop there. We can do it through our, our society. I work in a biodiversity group in, in my local area, and I think... Um, by doing that, I've learned an awful lot about the symbiotic relationship that we have with the nature around us. And I think it's it's really important that we start to look beyond our centrality as humans and think about how we're enmeshed with all these other species. And again, I think the car has also taken us away from that very physical engagement with our natural environment. Definitely. I think the pandemic is a clear example of how we are so connected to the environment. And I think... A good thing that came out of maybe the lockdowns is that people appreciated nature more and people appreciated being able to go outside and how beneficial that was for your mental health and just your general well-being. The pandemic yes. also shows that where there's a political will, you can make regulatory change happen very fast. Yeah. And and that's that. I think that's very interesting and something to reflect on and take away in terms of how a whole population can change its behaviours uh, overnight. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point because as soon as lockdown, the first one was announced, everyone was like, ooh, this is strange, but everyone did it. And then you got used to it, didn't you, very quickly. Like, humans can adapt to something very, very quickly. So it's not to say that this can't be done. As we said with fast fashion last week, it seems like such a, a huge problem because it's connected to so many countries' supply chains. And so it doesn't mean that you can't change it. It hasn't been around forever, as we mentioned, with like our grandparents making our parents' clothes and things. And it doesn't have to be around forever. So there can be really good change. Do you feel pessimistic or optimistic, Julia, about climate consciousness in the UK? So I I wouldn't single out the UK, and I and again um, I think we're on a <laughs> quite a pleasant hill. Um, so I can understand why people don't have a deep climate consciousness, um, particularly in this country. But I think globally, um, 
I'm very pessimistic. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, most, most of the detriment to the planet has been caused by the wealthiest people living on it. And it's very difficult to see how those people are going to be willing to give up what the life that they're currently enjoying. The people who are paying the consequences of that so far are those who are not in the wealthiest percentages. And I think we need to understand that we're all going to be impacted by this. Um, I do believe that we've missed the tipping points, that we've passed a number of tipping points. I don't believe that we can turn back the clock. Um, I'm, I'm very influenced by the work of Donna Haraway, and uh, she's, I think, saying she's an environmentalist is underestimating the many things she does. But she wrote a, a book called Staying with the Trouble, and she rejects those who see a techno fix around the corner, as do I. And I think it's a very dangerous road to go down because we're assuming something's going to save us from uh, what's coming. But she also rejects the doom mongers and those who see uh, an imminent apocalypse. And she says we need to stay with the trouble. We, we need to understand that interaction, that enmeshment with um, other species, with other generations, the future generations to come. And we need to understand that our, that our lives have to work together to make as livable as possible a set of conditions on the planet that we have. So I, I am pessimistic, but I'm proactive. And I think it's really important just to keep acting and to make things as, as tolerable as they can be, um, given the situation that we find ourselves in. So all is not lost in terms of our lives and your lives, but in terms of our future generations. The IPCC report was really interesting for a number of reasons. And what I took away from it was that temperature change, the tiniest of temperature change, will have a dramatic effect. So um, if we minimise the increase in temperature as much as possible, that will slow down, to some extent, the impact of climate change. So it's really important that we do take action and everything we do could have an impact but yeah it's not a happy ending <laughs> um, as my students find out when they do but at the same time I think that's that's not a reason to give up or be inactive and in fact it's all the more reason to be um, an activist and to join something like the the, the university's uh, climate justice movement which is looking at various aspects of, of um, how we live and how we can improve how we live because we might not be able to reverse what's already taken place, but I guess if we don't act, the consequences could be even worse than what they're looking right now. As we said before, each person that can, taking on a little bit more responsibility, I always say it with the rubbish and silly because it drives me mad, we will have massive bins that don't fit anywhere, and so you just see people can't use bins. Like, I get baffled by this every day. You use bin bags, you recycle by putting them in the correct thing, and people aren't helping the system that's in place that's already struggling. And I do think that people that can, and a lot of students in at the University of Birmingham can do a bit more, and I do think yeah. you have to take a little bit more on yourself when you can. But also, Birmingham Council, I mean, I hope they listen to this because <laughs> I've already like written to them. They don't take your recycling. They don't put your pods back in your bin, which prevents you from mm-hmm. the means to recycle the cardboard in the first place. And then they say that if you neatly stack it at the side of your bin, they will take it. And I have taken photos of how it looks in the morning. It is so neat and they still do not take the recycling. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think it's frustrating when the little things that are in place that you you think are helping don't seem to be. But maybe let's go more towards the last bit. I think 
what is there in your research? I know your focus is on Asia. What is there that is something positive that's happening? Sometimes with academia, we find that it doesn't quite translate into policy or into action. Your um, lands students and you understand the need for multidisciplinary perspectives. And I run um, something called the Green Network. Um, we meet once a month online online at the moment um, and it's staff and students all students very welcome and we talk about different issues regarding climate change and environmentalism each month and um, what's been really insightful about that is that we've had um, sessions on social justice and climate change on climate literature um, on uh, communication teaching climate change on plastics and what's very clear to those of us participating in that group is that you can't find solutions, academic or policy solutions, without working together. And I think it's really important if you look at the plastics network here at the University of Birmingham, um, there's a range of scholars working um, in sciences, but also in social sciences, understanding that it's not just the um, microplastics and the nanoplastics and the science of it that you need to understand, but how that translates not only into regulatory practices, but also into cultural practices and it fits in into society. So when, for example, I look at plastics in Southeast Asia, we're looking at how burning of plastics and the collection of imported plastic rubbish is a means of putting food on the table for your family. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand how these issues are, are affected by the socioeconomic environment in which they are located. And I think the more we can talk to one another as uh, scholars from a range of networks, we have a water council here as well that looks at the, the effects of nanoplastics and microplastics in, in the water cycle and uh, does far more than that, looks at pollution in water. Um, and soil erosion and the, and the problem of plastics in soil. So all these people are looking very differently at the, at the kinds of issues that we're all interested in. This, uh, in. At the end of April, our next session is going to be on transport. Um, so we're going to think about how sustainable transport, what does that mean? Um, I'm particularly interested in the concept of sustainable development. What does that mean? I think it's too catch-all a phrase and therefore it becomes all things to all policymakers. Mm-hmm. And, but how do we break that down into something meaningful that we can all nevertheless talk about? So, um, yes, I, I think it's it's really important that we have that multidisciplinary perspective and more important than scholars talking to one another, having students talk across disciplines and asking the same questions from their own disciplinary or interdisciplinary perspectives. I think that's the only way we're going to make some meaningful changes in the future and uh, I refer you back to Donna Haraway and uh, she says we need to think about alternative imaginaries how how can our creativity be brought to bear to think about those alternative imaginaries saying the sustainability needs to become not just a buzzword as well we again mentioned that in these episodes link very well (laughs) Um, in the fast fashion episode last week that often the problem with huge fast fashion companies is that sustainable or 20% recycled fabric or anything like that is 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 not fashionable in that sense or it's, it's seen as something to use and then exploit to make money from and I think even within the more policy side of it anything that says sustainable you're trying to think oh that's great but without 
actually looking at the nuances or seeing what actually is this trying to do. Mm. I saw an analogy the other day that was basically referred to sustainability to a restaurant and the hygiene rating <laughs> and how sustainability has become, if you just say sustainable, it's like, oh, okay, it's cool, I wouldn't expect anything less. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with like a five star, if you go to a restaurant and it's got a high, good hygiene rating, you'd be like, okay, that's what I would expect anyway. Yeah. But it's going into the details of what you're actually doing and not just saying you're sustainable but how are you doing that and what are you specifically doing and communicating that to your audience? I think, again, that comes back to where do we get our information from? Yeah. I heard a report this morning, a huge number of people believe everything they read online. Mm-hmm. Greenwashing is a thing. It's, it's real. You know, as you say, we use the word sustainable. And how do we find out information? What are our sources that we, we trust? And having groups again, that we trust to have those conversations with and share those sources, I think is is really important. Thank you so much for joining us. That was really insightful. And it's very interesting to have someone that actually works as an academic and has more knowledge, as obviously as students are studying it, but we don't have the the lifelong experience of of being a part of this. So it was really a helpful debate. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed your time on Can We Just Talk. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So I think we're just going to end it with, as you always say, each person, if they can, just do a bit more and open up the discussion, talk about it, create dialogue, and then we can hopefully move forward with some of these issues. So see you next week. Thank you. Bye.